Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. It is deja vu all over again. I think I just saw all of you about seven minutes ago, but we've got a new set of guests, and now we're going to really break down uh, what we just witnessed this afternoon. Uh, After nine-plus years, Donna Adelson finally appeared uh, for her arraignment in a Tallahassee courtroom, which she ultimately waived, and uh, her attorney pleaded guilty for her. Uh, she was there to hear the charges charges levied against her uh, in the murder and conspiracy plot to kill her ex-son-in-law, FSU law professor Dan Markell. Judge Stephen Everett, who presided over the Charlie Adelson case, also heard an emergency motion requesting that Donna Sue Adelson be put on house arrest. Spoiler alert, it did not happen. The big question now is what is next for Donna, the investigation, and what is Donna's life going to be like now that she's stuck in a Leon County jail? We're joined tonight by first time best guest. He is Tallahassee criminal defense attorney Nate Prince. He handled Tallahassee's notorious Henry Segura case. Segura received life sentences for the gruesome November 19, 2010 murders of Brandy Peters, her twin six-year-olds Tamaya and Tania Peters, and his own three-year-old son, Javante Segura. High-profile case, Nathan Prince, Nate Prince handled that and uh, was the defense attorney. She is not here yet, but she's supposed to be coming tied up at a dental appointment. Welcome to Mondays. Uh, she is the founder of Evolutionary Reentry Services. Jackie Pulverari is a leader with over 25 years of proven success in mentoring and therapeutic environments in criminal justice reentry. Her experience working with trauma in the criminal justice field culminated, culminated through her own personal journey of making poor choices over a decade ago. She spent time in jail, in prison for... Um, for wire fraud uh, and mortgage fraud. So that's what she was in there for. And last but not least, you see an avatar up there. Uh, her name is Jane. She was a former inmate at the Leon County Jail. Welcome to one and all. Uh, just getting back into this, a quick reminder, tomorrow, Charlie Adelson will be sentenced at 10.30 a.m. We'll be going live with it at 10.15. There will be victim impact statements Uh, that will be delivered via Zoom for the Markell family. It's unclear if Charlie Adelson will make a statement, uh, but uh, we will be there for it and we will bring it to you. Attorney Prince here, Counselor Prince. So they handled the issue of this emergency motion first and then got to the arraignment part of this. And basically, um, Judge Everts asked counsel and the counselor told Judge Everett that his client, Donna Sue Adelson, would waive the arraignment and he she would just plead guilty. Is this um, SOP, as they say, in the law? Yeah, I, I assume you mean plead not guilty, but yeah, no, most not- of the time arraignment doesn't occur at all. Uh, typically when there's private counsel retained, we just file a waiver of arraignment and proceed with discovery. It's kind of a nothing court date. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I'm not sure because I know you're a working attorney, but did you have a chance to watch the proceedings today uh, beginning at 3.30? No, sir, I didn't I didn't see what took place. (laughs) So uh, this is interesting. You know, this is obviously a very high profile case. As you know, Charlie Adelson was uh, convicted. He's going to be sentenced uh, just a few weeks ago, was convicted and will be sentenced tomorrow. Does Tallahassee, I mean, your your case with uh, with Henry Seguro, obviously high profile. How often does Tallahassee see a case of this magnitude? Um, well, I guess it depends on what you say by magnitude. In terms of attention, um, I, I don't know that there's been a case, at least in recent history, that's garnered, you know, kind of the national attention that this case has. Um, but, I mean, most first-degree murder cases here locally demand a lot of attention from the prosecutors and judges. Those are serious cases where the defendant or client is almost always in custody for the duration of the case. Um, and, and the media, um, you know, local media at least, is usually following those cases. So, I mean, in, in terms of getting media attention, that's not that uncommon. But having a case that, um, you know, CNN or ABC or the Associated Press picks up is is not very common for Tallahassee. And... Um you guys are known for your college football, though. I'll give you that. Except a uh, tough year this year, but we won't even go. We won't even go there because it's too sensitive a subject for uh, Tallahassians. Uh, Jane, to you, um, I'd like you to just briefly introduce yourself, however you feel comfortable. I'll just give a little caveat that Jane reached out to me anonymously, and uh, we vetted her. I spoke to her, and uh, just so you know, I've had a lot of people reach out, um, so I'm very careful. Uh, you know, with who I speak to and ultimately who comes on the show. But she did spend some time recently in the Leon County Jail and happened to be in the same pod as Donna Sue Adelson. So I thought it'd be really fitting uh, to have her on so you can get kind of an insider perspective. But Jane, whatever you're comfortable telling us, um, and I understand that you've been into this case basically from the day of the murder. You live in Tallahassee, so all the way back to July 18th, 2014. Of course, Dan died the following day. But um, what got you interested in this case before we get, you know, before we get to your experience in jail? Well, I've um, worked in the legal field in Tallahassee for 24 years now and uh, know quite a few people, uh, know people that live on Trescott. Um, and it just, of course, it was just a horrible tragedy that um, really caught your attention right off the bat. Um, and being someone who actually, you know, experienced a contentious divorce where my family also wanted me to move, but didn't hire a hitman <laughs> to take care of my ex-husband, you know, you can kind of understand, uh, you know, the, the anger that comes with it, but also the, um, just how could that even happen? You know, taking your child's father away from, you know, from those two twin boys is just, it's hard to fathom. Yeah. And uh, Nate Prince, I don't want to make light of this, but people have, have reached out to me, have told me, have said, look, I've been through a divorce too. And if you saw my mother's emails to me, you, you, you wouldn't even believe it. You'd think that she was Donna Sue Adelson. I know you're not a psychologist, but there is a fine line. People do get heated up. They always say that family court is much more dangerous than criminal court. Um, but what is it in your estimation that 
got Charlie Adelson convicted and could get Donna Sue Adelson convicted. What what was it that pushed them over that proverbial precipice? So I, I guess I'll answer your question kind of, kind of from a 30,000 foot view. Um, yeah. I, I didn't follow the, the trial very closely. I didn't watch the proceedings as they were taking place. But, um, you know, hey, I, I, way, before you go, pause up day. Love this attorney's office. Wow. Gorgeous. Nate told me he fixed it up during the pandemic. I said it looks straight out of central casting. You need like Anthony Hopkins in there or somebody. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah. So so I, I guess the, the best thing that I can tell you is that, you know, m- most criminal offenses are offenses that could be committed by most people. Um, that, that's the, the most basic thing I can tell you about it. Most of the guys that I represent and most of the clients that are represented by other criminal defense attorneys are not evil, evil people. Those kind of defendants are very few and far between. It's circumstances. Circumstances make criminals. Now, obviously, there's personal choice and you, you cross the threshold at some point where, you know, hating somebody and wishing somebody would just go away becomes criminal because you take steps towards effectuating it. And it seems like that's what took place here, uh, particularly in light of the circumstantial evidence that kind of lays as a narrative on top of the entire case and the evidence that's been introduced. But, um, yeah, the the, the, the old adage that family court is the most dangerous court is is often true. I mean, a lot of times guys that are are coming into criminal court have been there before. They understand how the process is going to work. They're just looking to get out of, of the situation with as little damage as possible, whereas you know, uh, family court can feel like an existential battle for your quality of life for your kids and often plays out that way. And a lot of times, particularly in, in cases where the parties have resources and can fight and pay lawyers to fight, it gets even uglier because everybody's incentive is to draw it out and fight and fight and fight instead of reaching common ground. Obviously, the more a lawyer works, the more, the more lawyer bills, um, which is why I like flat fee cases like criminal. Um, <laughs> But at the end of the day, like, you know, you, you got to do what's in your client's best interest, no matter what kind of case it is. And that, that's where the attorney client relationship becomes important, because if your client doesn't trust you and your judgment at the end of the day, they're not going to listen to you when you give them the advice that matters about how to dispose of a case. Uh, by the way, we just had a woman named Olivia Summerhill on. We had three divorce experts. She has her own firm. Uh, she came from a very high a net worth family and experienced a terrible divorce and opened a firm to help people financially, but she only deals with extremely high wealth. Uh, we're talking billionaires, hundred millions, billions, and said that it gets even nastier with the uber wealthy. They they hold the money over people, and it is brutal. So she was talking about that. It was a fascinating uh, segment. If you haven't seen it. It is, I think, titled Deadly Divorces and uh, why this case uh, became deadly in and of itself. Uh, Before we go back to uh, Jane here and hear a little bit about jail life. And by the way, Jane was in the same pod as Donna Sue Adelson. So if you have questions, I'm going to start to scoot to the bottom of the chat. Please get them in, uh, obviously, both uh, for Nate, but also um, for Jane about jail conditions. Anything you ever wanted to know about what it's like for Donna in the Leon County Jail, Jane is your person. But before we get there, Marvina Bigby, Henry Segura is a demon who's your client. Nate, tell us about this. Uh, a lot of people don't know this case if they're not from the area. Just briefly uh, run us through it and tell us 
obviously was super high profile. What was it like for you in, in those regards? Yeah, I tried not to bristle during your open when you talked about the facts of the case. Henry's the only truly, totally innocent client I've ever represented. And I'm not a true believer, okay? I don't say that about every single client. I've had plenty of clients who are technically not guilty, either because the state lacked sufficient evidence or because there was some affirmative defense like self-defense that applied. But Henry's the only innocent client I've ever represented. So somebody sitting at home that wants to characterize him as a demon that hasn't sat in front of him and doesn't know what a demon looks like, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, before I ever agreed to accept Henry's case, I interviewed him for six hours. Not that it took that long to figure out what he was about and who he was. Um, those, like I said before, evil people, like those kind of people don't come along very often, even in this line of work. And when they come along, it's not hard to spot them. Like they'll, they'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. They, they give you a bad vibe. It, it's, you know, it's not difficult to tell who's truly evil. In Henry's case, you know, that was a hard contested case that we had to try twice. The, the first time we tried the case, uh, we hung 11-1 ultimately in favor of acquittal. And there was tons of evidence that supported acquittal in that case. You know, there was foreign DNA under the victim's fingernails. There were uh, blood spatter evidence, which indicated that multiple people were involved in the commission of the offense, consistent with what uh, the the uh, cartel informant ultimately ended up admitting on the stand. There were multiple uh, wounds that indicated different weapons being used during the commission of the offense. Um, yeah, you know, I could go on and on about that, but the bottom line is Henry Segura just wasn't a murderer. You know, at the, at the end of the day, um, no matter how innocent your client is, it's really, really difficult to get people to step over dead kids in particular on, on route to a not guilty verdict. And they, they truly have to believe in your client's innocence if they're going to find somebody not guilty under those circumstances. And in the last trial, it just didn't happen. We, we couldn't convince those jurors that, that Henry was innocent. So, you know, that's something that you carry forward with you and, and apply the lessons to every case that you handle in the future. But the bottom line is most cases are not like that. Most cases are pretty simple for an experienced criminal defense attorney. It comes down to a few issues that need to be disputed and everything else is just kind of background noise. In terms of uh, the high profile nature of that case in this case, obviously things have changed uh, since that case happened. Now it's 2023, almost 2024. You've got Twitter, you've got YouTube channels like this one. Um, how is that? How's the court of public opinion influenced the courtrooms uh, when it comes to the advent of technology? I, I guess the best way to answer that is to say it depends on each individual juror. There is no general rule for how media coverage impacts a case. If a juror is malleable and can be manipulated or influenced easily anyway, then if they see media coverage on a case, maybe they will be. Uh, most of the time, though, I think that most jurors focus exclusively on what they hear and see in the courtroom, particularly as it pertains to the material witnesses, the witnesses who offer testimony about the three or four things that are really in dispute and really hotly debated in the course of a trial. And I think a lot of times they make their decisions independent of like facts that have been definitively established or even the instructions by the court. You know, people intuitively sense when somebody is lying in, in a lot of cases. And obviously the deck is stacked against a criminal defense, uh, against a criminal defendant in that respect. I mean, you can't really look innocent when a bunch of people are dragged into the courtroom and you're sitting there 
uh, next to a criminal defense attorney at a table and referred to as the defendant throughout the trial. And the whole question is, you know, whether you did some horrible, heinous, unspeakable act or, or committed a series of acts, it's hard to look innocent at all under those circumstances. But like people listen to what they see and hear in the courtroom. I, I, I don't think that public opinion plays much of a role in most trials. I think it's largely overstated. Nate, I might have you raise your right hand and affirm or swear that that is, in fact, not a chroma key, not a green screen behind you. That is an actual real law library that I'm looking at. I, I swear, I, I would rather retire and do stuff like that than have to be in court all the time. That's what I did <laughs> during the pandemic. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. Uh, from Rula, question for Jane. Uh, uh, Rula, Jane was not in the jail at the same time as Donna, but she was in there recently. So... Uh, Jane, to you, uh, Rula wanted to know if she, if Donna tried to take control in the jail like she tried in court just now. I guess the bigger question, did you come across people like Donna, Jane, while you were there who were dismayed or in disbelief? And uh, I might add that, you know, you, you come from fairly, you know, decent means. You know, you're not someone that you would typically find, let's say, in jail, although it runs across the socioeconomic spectrum. But the typical person that you might imagine, uh, you are not that person. Um, but did you find people who were of a controlling nature when you were behind bars in the Leon County Jail? Um, just the guards at the Leon County Jail, they were, they were of a controlling nature. Um, to be honest with you, the, the women in the pod I was in were... Uh, were very kind. Um, they were very helpful. I've never had so much as a detention in school. I mean, never got in trouble. Uh, found like like Nate said, it it it, it can happen to anyone. Uh, no one is immune. Uh, like you, just circumstances, whatever the case may be. Um, and I was scared. I, I didn't know how to make phone calls. I didn't know how to do anything. Um, and the women in there actually were very kind and rallied around me and put their own problems to the side, and um, which I was really surprised. Um, but nobody was like overbearing or anything of that sort. Do, do you think that Donna's getting the same treatment? I, I, I just can't imagine them rallying behind her. She's also in direct observations, you know, on a suicide watch. So um, what do you think the other inmates reaction to her is at this moment? Well, they, if it's anything like the women that were in direct observation when I was there, uh, the, the guards don't actually stand right outside their door like they act alike in court today. Um, they walk by there, they check on them. Uh, if we're out in the general population area, we can see them in their cells. Um, and they only get to come out like two hours a day. Um, and then they only get to come out like by themselves. So she's probably not having much interaction with anybody but the guards. And I have to tell you that I believe 100% that she has not seen a psychiatrist every day since she's been there. Um, because when I got booked into the Leon County Jail, when they took me and did my vitals and so forth, um, they told me my blood pressure was high. Of course, I was upset. They gave me medication to lower my blood pressure and told me they'd come check on me in 30 minutes. 
nobody ever came for for i was in there for almost a week nobody ever gave me my medications that i was on that they said that they would bring to me as soon as they verified them um so i see a lot of truth in what is going on uh, and what they are alleged what they alleged in that motion yeah. and that's what was my reason for reaching out to you because there is a lot of um things that go on at the Liam County Jail that normal inmates that are in and out of there all the time, no one's going to listen to them because yeah, they lose credibility. That, that, that's really interesting. So Nate, back to you on this, there's essentially, you know, what amounts to a, a lynch mob out there, people who want Donna Adelson, um, you know, found guilty uh, before she's given a fair and just trial. Uh, they're making these points. Her attorney is, and you're hearing Jane right now say that she believes probably some of these things coming out of the Donna Adelson camp, if you will. How important is it uh, as a criminal defense attorney for you to know that your client is treated, you know, with the degree of humanity that they should be and also constitutional and more important that their constitutional rights are being met? All right. So I'm going to answer this question real for you. So on the one hand, Everything that uh, Jane just said is true. Inmates are habitually mistreated at every correctional institution I've ever been to, but not in ways that rise to the level of constitutional violations. All right. Like for the, for the judge to even be able to tell the sheriff to do something at the jail with respect to a particular inmate, the conduct would have to be so ridiculously egregious that it would rise to the level of deliberate indifference as it as it relates to an Eighth Amendment violation, um, you know, and, and as it relates to Sixth Amendment violations, access to, to counsel and effective representation. You have that right at each material stage of the proceeding, of course, and you have a right to, to um, communicate with your attorney. That doesn't mean you have a right to, uh, uh, you know, talk to your attorney whenever you want to and under whatever circumstances you want to. What I hear is that she's being treated like every other inmate everywhere else. And she, for the first time in her life, doesn't feel special. It's rough. You go to jail and guess what? You're going to get strip searched. Guess what? You can't have what you want to eat. You can't watch TV when you want. Can't talk on the phone when you want. You don't have anything you want. Yeah, you're controlled by correctional officers because a judge has found probable cause to believe that you committed a murder, that's your flight risk and not appropriate for pretrial release or bond, and you're going to be treated like the inmate you are. I know that sounds harsh, but that's how it is. And this isn't by any stretch of the imagination anything on par with actual abuses that I've seen. I, I represent a client's family right now in a case where he was diagnosed at a Bureau of Prisons facility in the federal system uh, with a serious medical condition, uh, they all knew about it. They came up with a treatment plan. The treatment plan was for direct acting antivirals. And they agreed a couple of months into his uh, incarceration to provide those treatment and that, that treatment in compliance with the Eighth Amendment. And the guy died 14 months later without ever having received a single dose of the medication. That's what abuse looks like. What she's talking about, frankly, is nonsense. Every male inmate I have is in G-Pod or H-Pod for the first couple of weeks in red and whites when they come into jail. That means you're not in general population. It means you only get to come out one hour every third day. You only get to shower one hour every third day. And like, oh my gosh, gasp, grasp your, grasp your pearls. That's how it is. I mean, that's jail. That's prison. That's how it is. And just because she's from an affluent family doesn't mean she's going to be treated any different than anybody else is. This is what 
happens when probable cause is found to believe that you committed a serious criminal offense. Uh, well stated. Um, Jane, to you, here's a section of uh, the emergency motion that was filed. I just want to get your take on this, Jane, and then we've got some video that will play. When Donna made her concerns known, this ha is ha having to do with medications in the motion, the official told Donna, this is at the Leon County Jail, that Donna, quote unquote, is a fancy white lady who murdered her son and now thinks she has rights, end quote. The official joke with the other guards about this outside of Donna's door. The official then said that Donna will, quote unquote, learn that fancy white lady murderers have no rights here and told Donna, do you see where you are and do you see where I am? I am out here because I am not a murderer. Jane, does this stun you, surprise you? Is this something that you could imagine the guards saying about you? <laughs> yes, because they, they, the, the guard who booked me did, uh, she, um, I obviously wasn't as uh, out, outgoing or ebullient as she thought I should be or buoyant, however you say that. Um, and so she told me that um, I was, you know, being a, am I allowed to say the B word? <laughs> that yeah. I was being a, a white bitch, um, that I had an attitude. Um, I, I needed to calm down. With, with my, you know, the way I'm acting, that she has all the power over me. If I want to get numbers out of my phone, you know, I mean, she just, she just basically went off on me, put, you know, it, it was, it was, it was like, I'm, I have power over you now and I'm going to just, I'm going to show you just how much. Mm. And, um, it's true. And you, you got to keep your mouth shut. You definitely can't say anything. And I was, um, you know, I was, all I was trying to do was, you know, I asked her if I could, you know, go on my phone and get get a few phone numbers that I because of people I don't know by heart. And um, and I guess she so, you know, I opened up my phone and something from a news agency or something popped up and she took my phone away from me right then. You're not looking up phone numbers. You're looking at the news. And I'm like, no. <laughs> And it, you know, it was just one thing after another, but she was very, very hateful. And um, there's just no reason for it. You know, anybody, people are innocent who, you know, you, you don't know what someone's background or, or what they're, they don't know what I'm in there for. They don't know anything, but yet they, they feel like because you walk through that door, you're all, all of a sudden a scumbag. Mm. And um, that's not the case. And it yeah. was disgusting how she spoke to me. It was really disgusting. And, you know, and then I saw the, the chief testifying today of the jail. He doesn't have a clue what's going on. That was obvious. He has no idea what's going on in his jail. None. I have to say on that, in that regard, I, I, you know, I don't know that he was just not prepared, didn't know what was coming his way, but he had a very difficult time um, answering any of the mm. questions um, asked of him by the defense. Shivani says watching Donna was horrifying so much uh, rage oozing from her face. Let's take a look. This is Donna's entrance, I believe. Let's just take a quick look at this. This is her coming into the courtroom today. You see, she's shackled. She's in a blue jumpsuit, feet and hands shackled. With some thermals underneath because it is chilly in Tallahassee relative to Miami, where I am. And uh, she takes her seat there.
So, Nate, you know, there were moments, there was actually a moment where the judge had to tell Donna Adelson to stop speaking and let uh, her attorney speak on her behalf. She looked incredulous. She looked annoyed. What is your advice to your clients? And what, what kind of first impression is that for Judge Everett? I assume not a very good one. Judge Everett doesn't care how she behaves in court. He's dealt with difficult defendants in the past and he'll deal with difficult defendants in the future. Um, you know, obviously he wants to maintain control of the courtroom and not have a defendant speaking out over their attorney. That's bad form and, and uh, conduct that's likely to get you in trouble under any circumstances. But, you know, this is kind of the weird thing about uh, the topic you've gone, we've gone back and forth on here. Like on the one hand, yeah, it, it is kind of terrible the way it's mostly correctional officers, not, not as much command staff, uh, but a lot of correctional officers at a lot of correctional institutions do seem to do exactly what Jane was saying. They enjoy the power that they have. They lord it over the inmates. They treat the inmates like human garbage. So there, there's definitely an element of that. But it's also true that affluent white clients are the worst. I mean, they're just the worst. Like I, I, I've had rich white kids say to me like, well, man, I can't go to prison. And I have to tell them, buddy, I assure you, you can go to prison and will if you don't follow my advice. You know, nobody cares about your feelings. You don't have a constitutional right to have people be nice to you. Okay, you're charged with murder. You're an inmate. You're going to be treated like an inmate. You're not going to be able to listen to your earbuds and, and, you know, have incense burning as you go to sleep. You're not going to be able to talk on the phone to whoever you want. Like, this is part of the process. You know, they, they keep people in custody. Now, like, we could debate the merits of that system, uh, detaining pretrial inmates and whether that actually advances public interest and pushes the case forward or not. And we could have a good debate about that. But that's just the reality. You know, it's both. There, there are both people that are subject to really kind of mean, abusive behaviors and, and, and conduct that doesn't amount to a constitutional violation. But then you also have entitled folks who have gotten treated special their whole lives who have to learn when they get to jail. You are not special anymore. You're just an inmate and you're going to be treated like just an inmate no matter who you are. Yeah. And I think that's the issue, obviously, that Donna is uh, experiencing right now. Um, Jane, uh, by the way, Cheryl Harvey here, I'm assuming the times you're mentioning for Charlie Adelson sentencing tomorrow, it is Eastern time, 1030 AM Eastern. We will be live at 1015 with a uh, former Tallahassee prosecutor, Jeremy Mutz, now a criminal defense attorney will be doing, uh, some live coverage and analysis, uh, with us mount time. I do think would be 8.30, although I'm not 100% sure. You have to check that on your own, but it is 10.15 a.m. Eastern time. Um, there's a question here from Lindsay Shea, right in your wheelhouse, Jane. What's it like in the medical unit in Leon County? Tell us, where is Donna right now? Uh, it's this direct observation. Kind of paint the proverbial picture, if you will, of what it looks like in there and what it's like for her. Well, she's in the um, pod where um, I believe Mr. Webster's partner the other day described it too. It's a it's it's a pod that has the on the top floor has chain link fencing so that nobody can jump over, um, and it's just cells everywhere and in the middle it's kind of like what you'd see on tv <laughs> in the middle there's tables and um chairs and so forth for when they do 
Um, there are some some DP, uh, inmates that they let out uh, for longer times a day than they do others. Um, so, you know, there is, I don't know, I guess it would be like a semi-gen pop type of thing. You know, they'll let you out for four hours a day instead of the other people that only get two or whatever. But that's basically, it just looks like there's two floors and there's, um, you know, the upstairs has fencing all around it and the downstairs is, you know, just, I mean, it just looks like any other, just like you'd see on TV. Um, Nothing special. Yeah, I'm going to get back to you sort of on the daily routine there to have you walk us through it. But um, Nicole Gross has a question for Nate. How would Nate handle a client like Donna who's unable to keep her mouth shut or to stop making faces at the defendant's table? Nate's smirking already. What would you do, Nate? Yeah, you, you got to set the ground rules up front. Like before I take a case, I tell the client in most circumstances, look, you have certain constitutional rights. You get to decide whether you testify and you get to decide whether you take a plea deal or go to trial. However, if you want to exercise those rights. Well, just lost you there for a sec. Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, I mean, I, I tell him, however, you know, if you want to exercise those rights independently on your own without listening to my advice, don't hire me because I expect my clients to do what I say. And, and that's because they trust me. They know that I'm working for their benefit. E even if they get mad at me, even if they wish that I could be out there to, to see them weekly or something like that, they understand that, you know, that, that's why I was talking about before, that the importance of the attorney-client relationship is what allows you to effectively represent somebody. You know, that forming a good relationship up front is what allows you to effectively represent somebody because they're not going to listen to you if they don't trust you. And in this circumstance, you know, I would have easily anticipated the way that she was going to behave and try to behave and, and you know, her her complaints about the, how the jail is dealing with her would have already been addressed um, easily. I mean, frankly, this is what's kind of silly about the, the motion that they filed today. Again, the judge doesn't have any authority at all to tell the sheriff what to do with her in the absence of a constitutional violation. So if there's any rational basis whatsoever for them, uh, you know, keeping her in medical or putting her in protective custody, the sheriff can do that. And the judge can't tell him not to do that. A, a sheriff is, there's a separation of powers between executive branch uh, officials like the sheriff and the courts. And unless there's a constitutional violation, the court can't intervene and tell the sheriff how to run the jail. So, um, you know, to the extent that there was concern about her getting her medication, the best way to address that is just work with medical staff because you're not entitled to get the same medicine you've been on. You know, I've had plenty of clients that go into jail on a medication that they're not supposed to go off of cold turkey. And but that's exactly what happened. You know, you're not going to get Xanax in the jail. You're going to get dosed with Torazine and told to go lay down and sleep most of the day. That, that's just how it is. So you, you catch a lot more honey, if, you know, you catch a lot more flies with honey as in any circumstance. And if you work with classification and express your concerns and you know, talk to people there at the jail instead of go tattletale into the judge, you're going to get better results for your client, number one. And number two, it'll make everything easier for the client as well. Because, you know, as, as Jane was alluding to before, correctional officers and other inmates a lot of times don't like uh, inmates who act like they're special. And the sooner they realize that they're not special, the better off they'll be, the better treated they'll be. And so I would tell clients that. That's why, like, I always, I always say to guys, like, my favorite clients are real criminals professional criminals who know what time it is, shut up and do what I say, 
when I say to do it and know that I'm telling them to do that because it's in their best interest, not mine. You know, in this circumstance, none of this should have gotten in front of the camera. None of this should have gotten in front of the court. It's so easy. Like the Leon County Jail is, uh, of all the correctional institutions in the panhandle that I go to, probably the easiest big correctional institution to deal with. You know, I, I call up there, my assistant will call up there and get me an in-person contact with any client I want, any day I want. It's not like it's hard. In a lot of cases, you can get them to a phone on an unrecorded line if you just call up there and ask and make it happen. It's not difficult. You know, it's not, they, they want to help you. They're not trying to get dragged into court. Now, some other places, it's not like that. Some other places, they, they will try and obstruct and make it difficult, but not most places. Most places, if you're respectful to them as the attorney or the attorney staff, making contact to express concerns, you know, they deal with you. I mean, we're talking about Walt McNeil too, ultimately here. This is a guy that was involved in, in, in heavily influential in the Innocence Project before he, you know, became Leon County Sheriff again here. Um, yeah, it, so I, I don't find a lot of merit legally at all in, in the motion that they filed. And, and from a practical standpoint, I just think that was poor strategy and not knowing the people that you're dealing with. Any business is about relationships primarily. And if, if you form relationships with the people at the jail, you can get whatever you need to get done, done with their cooperation. And I'm going to come back to you about your thoughts on a Tallahassee attorney versus, let's say, a Miami attorney. There was um, a lot of, I don't want to say criticism, but a lot of feedback on that uh, when it came to Charlie Adelson's trial. But I laugh when you're talking about real criminals being your favorite clients because Luis Rivera, who's a Latin King gang member, who was one of the two hitmen, uh, at least at this trial, to me, was the most credible. He was believable. He was actually likable. Um, it was it was wild to watch him because he really, I think, was just speaking the truth. He has nothing to lose. He caught the deal, and uh, he was just up there being himself. Um, so it was it was interesting to hear you say that your best clients are quote unquote the real criminals here. Um, due to the publicity, is the jail likely to keep Donna isolated from other inmates? Nate, I'll let you take that, and I'll get back to um, Jane on some other stuff. No, they don't care about publicity unless there's some sort of specific threat to an inmate, and then they take it seriously and protect the inmate to the extent possible. Um, what she's going through is what everybody goes through. You know, like I said before, uh, any male client that I have, this is standard fare. Like I said, you get put in red and whites, you go to G2 or G1, you go to H5, you don't get to get out, and it takes a couple of weeks to classify you. And as in this case, if there's a concern about, you know, a desire to harm yourself or anything along those lines, if there's any rational basis to believe that, why would the correctional staff not take that seriously? Why, why would they even allow for the possibility that somebody commits suicide on their watch? They don't, and they won't. So... She can cry about it all she wants, but the sheriff has every right to do what they're doing. And it's frankly not anything uh, that's out of the ordinary for anybody. This is just how people are handled when they become inmates. Uh, Heather N says, uh, my guess is Donna used suicide as a way to further herself from other jail inmates. Uh, Jane, to you, do you buy that, that she was threatening suicide as a, you know, as a way to I don't know. She it sounds like she doesn't want to be on direct observation, but maybe she thought if she threatened it, she'd be left alone. What do you think, Jane? It it's very possible that she was, uh, you know, that that she did that. She um, she's done a lot of things that are kind of silly, like you know, on the jailhouse call with 
Charlie talking about, you know, committing suicide and, and that type of thing. Um, they, she very well could have gone in there and told classification that she, you know, felt sad or suicidal or whatever. And then that's, and people think that's going to get you put somewhere different, but it's not, it's going to, you know, get you put right where she is. So, um, you know, my, my concern is like, are, are they, is anybody actually meeting with her every day? Cause they're saying that that's not what's happening. So like, has she been reevaluated? Um, yeah. the best, yeah. you know, the, the best thing her attorney can do for her right now is to at least get co-counsel from Tallahassee um, so that she can learn contacts and can establish a relationship with the jail. Uh, um, Donna's um, attorney, you know, if she wants to keep a Miami attorney, she needs to at least get a second chair up here in Tallahassee. Yeah. They can afford it. Yeah. Nate, what do you think about that? Cause uh, the rub against them was that they had this, you know, high-powered criminal defense attorney from Miami, and then they brought in a New York-based uh, jury consultant from Wardier, and, you know, he's Josh Dubin, who's very well-known. Do you think it would have benefited, Charlie, to have an attorney locally who could make the calls to the jail, knows the people? You said it's a business of relationships. Would that have been a benefit to Charlie Adelson and Donna Adelson moving forward? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, there's no question about that. If you have somebody who's physically here and could go out there and see the client in person or talk to the ladies at the front desk or, you know, get the sheriff or, or the chief on the phone, if there's some big problem, that that's definitely uh, an advantage. But I mean, in terms of, you know, being from Miami or New York, there are plenty of good trial lawyers from Miami that could try cases up here effectively. There's plenty of good trial lawyers, I'm sure, in New York that could try cases up here. But it's it's the same as it is for any jury trial. You've got to know who your jury is, you know, and you, you don't do things intentionally that are going to rub them the wrong way if you can if you can avoid doing that without being disingenuous. Because that's the most important thing. Whether you're you know, like me, a fast talking northerner that would prefer to be wearing chrome suits in court. You know, you might you might, you know, not wear the chrome suit. You may wear the, the red and blue tie with the white shirt and the you know navy blue drab suit. But you, you got to be you at the end of the day, because juries see right through anybody that's being fake or phony or playing a role or, or anything like that. I mean, for a jury, uh, being disingenuous is the easiest thing to spot. And I'm not even talking about the content of somebody's testimony. If somebody's acting, a jury can tell that. It's intuitive. They figure it out together as it happens. So, yeah, I mean, you want a good trial attorney. It doesn't matter where they're from. Generally speaking, you're more likely to get an attorney that will play well in Tallahassee if you hire somebody from Tallahassee, just like you would generally find somebody that's going to play better to a Miami a jury if you hired a, an attorney from Miami. But if you're a good, a good trial lawyer, it doesn't matter. The problem is, there's not that many good trial lawyers because people just don't try cases because it sucks. It's super stressful. You're carrying a client's life on your back. You're not getting paid more to do that if you're a good lawyer. You know, people that charge trial fees are just trying to disincentivize their clients from going to trial because it's hard. It's hard. It's stressful. You know, that's why people don't build their practices to go to trial on criminal cases most of the time. But if you get a good trial lawyer, it doesn't really matter where they're from. It's like I said before, you form relationships with the people at the jail. It's not hard to do. And then you form, you know, kind of mini relationships with the jurors during the course of the trial. 
And if you're good at what you do, you make the interaction between the defense and the jury about the interaction between you and the jury and not about the interaction between the jury and your client. You kind of want to deflect their attention and absorb their attention because they'll like you if you're genuine. As long as you, uh, you know, work with the judge and are respectful to your opponent and speak truth to them and don't try and feed them something that is just obviously intuitively BS, then they'll listen to you, right? And, th and then th that's what you want to do. You want to deflect from the client because the client is always, always going to want to try them, try to make themselves look better than they are. That's probably the, the truest advice I could give to any criminal defendant who's trying to go to trial. Don't play a character. Don't try to make yourself sound better than you are. If you're a jerk, then tell the jury you are a jerk. I just had a closing argument in a death penalty case that ultimately we uh, just took as a, a life case to trial where I had to tell the jury an opening statement. Yeah, my client's a dirtbag. You're going to think he's a dirtbag once you hear all the evidence. Scumbag, dirtbag, whatever you want to use. But that doesn't mean that he's guilty of the crime. That doesn't mean that the state has checked all the boxes of the elements of the offense that the judge is going to instruct you about. So it, it's really a lot simpler than I think most trial attorneys make it. You don't need a jury consultant. You need to listen to people. You need to watch their face and absorb the nonverbal communication. You know, th this isn't rocket science. You're just trying to convince six or 12 people, depending on the type of case, to follow the law. I mean, because the law is the one thing that favors criminal defendants. If you can get them to follow the law, you're going to win most cases. It's just that that's the hard part, right? It's hard to get a jury to follow the law, particularly on a serious case, if they think that your client is guilty. Nobody wants to walk a murderer. So they, they tend to kind of default in that direction, notwithstanding the instructions about the presumption of innocence. You got to do your job as a criminal defense attorney on your client's behalf by making them willing to follow the law and finding people that are open to that possibility. That's what jury selection is. If you go into jury selection thinking that you're going to convince people of something, you've lost the case already. You're not convincing anybody of anything ever. Like we, we lawyers like to talk like that and think we are, but we're not. If you're a good lawyer, you're finding the people that think the way you already want them to think so mm. that when you tell them that there isn't sufficient evidence to prove the case, they listen to you and consider the merit of your argument. You're getting a primer on the law. Since you said you're a northerner, I got to ask, where are you from? I grew up about uh, 30 minutes outside of Detroit, in between Detroit and Ann Arbor. So although go. Florida State's out, at least Michigan's in. Go blue. One, there you go. One of my best friends is from Ann Arbor. Go blue. Um, misdemeanor OG, DOG. Someone asked me what OG meant, uh, stood for. Original gangsta, of course. Uh, when, how soon do you get background info? Jane, this is for you. Uh, when or how soon do you get background info on new inmates? What things should Donna share with other inmates, if anything? Well, I was only in, in there for a week, which was a week too long. <laughs> but um, some of the inmates, uh, some of, you know, your fellow inmates shared with you right off the bat what they were in for. They were, uh, you know, they'd sit down, you talk, and they would, you know, tell you what was going on. And um now there and there are other inmates that were in there where their attorneys told gave them a, you know the advice their attorneys gave them was not to discuss their charges and everybody was very respectful of you know of that obviously um as far as donna goes with the way she likes to turn to charlie <laughs> like to talk if i were her i would just keep my mouth shut um because you know they they've already said some things that just you know 
not, you know, not going to be good for when the trial comes. So, you know, she just needs to, if she does get put in gen pop, she just probably should just keep to herself, I would think. But And Jane, what, Jane, what's fascinated you about this case? You said you've been interested since the day of the murder. Well, it's just because I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what it is about the case. Um, you know, I guess it was because I, you know, I, I knew people who, you know, lived over there. I also, um, you know, know people who um, knew him and, you know, um, you know, Dan Markell. And it just, um, it, it, you know, it started out with the interest in Wendy and the book and how, you know, it, her interrogation and all of that. And it's just knowing that, yeah, there's just something to this. This definitely wasn't random, not in, you know, and I don't know. And just the interest just kept going from there. It's just, it, it's crazy that this family that had everything, everything. I mean, they, they lived on South beach and, you know, the icon condos, they, they had the world at their fingertips. They were smart, you know, smart people and, they just ruined their whole lives and dance the lives of the Markell family. And you just don't, it's just very hard to wrap your head around and it's good to see justice, you know, getting done. And, um, you know, it finally <laughs> after take, so many take, years, it's taken a long time. Uh, Nate, you've got a lot of experience in this. And again, I know you're not a psychologist, you're a lawyer, but why is it, you know, you talked about criminals being your best clients, but why is it that people um, who come from these uh, backgrounds, you know, affluent backgrounds and have all the advantages in the world? And you talk about, you know, some young guys that said, you know, they, that they, they could avoid prison and you're telling them they can't because, you know, no one is above the law. What, in your opinion, in a case like this, what, what was it about this family where they thought they could maybe get away with this? It's nothing unusual at all. No criminal thinks they're going to get caught, whether they're rich or poor, black or white, male or female, smart or stupid. They all think they're going to get away with it. Nobody thinks while they're committing an offense, they're going to get caught. It's just that rich white people are used to not getting caught doing anything wrong. You know, they're used to having all the advantages. They're used to, you know, getting a manager when they demand a manager. Nobody at the jail is a manager and they don't care what you think. You know, so she, like it's going to be an adjustment. Right. There's going to be some. Uh, privilege withdrawal here for her as she gets used to what life is really like when you're a charged criminal defendant. But, you know, at the end of the day, she's not going to be abused or mistreated. Uh, I don't believe not under Walt McNeil's watch. I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever had a client that was like proactively uh, abused in a way that would rise to the level uh, of a constitutional violation at the Leon County Jail. Um, the, the, the staff there, especially the command staff, seems to really care about that. Um, I just think this is one of those situations where it's going it's to take some adjusting to what the reality of their life is now. Their, their life is about the upcoming trial, and it's going to take a long time to get to that trial. They're not going to trial anytime soon. There's going to be, you know, discovery that takes forever. There will be depositions way down the road. Discovery will continue to come out all throughout the pendency of the case. It's going to take a long time. And everybody gets used to what it's like to be a criminal defendant over the course uh, of dependency of their case, some to, to greater levels than others. But I mean, this is this is just kind of uh, par for the course with a criminal case 
that's this serious. Most murder cases take a couple of years to get to trial once the defendant is arrested on the charge. And uh, and that's even on simple first degree murder cases, you know, just robberies or drug drug deals gone bad or whatever. Even on those kind of cases, it takes a long time. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if this takes, uh, you know, a couple of years to get to trial. Uh, now, the case has kind of been litigated already um, with focus on other defendants. So maybe it won't take quite that long. Um, maybe they'll get a more expeditious trial. But, you know, I also don't know that that would really be in the defendant's best interest. Very rarely is it in the defendant's best interest to rush to trial. And the reason is that, uh, you know, if if your client's telling the truth, then the witnesses accusing them or offering evidence against them are going to have inconsistencies develop in their testimony over time. Because if you're lying or exaggerating or fabricating, you ain't going to remember all the ins and outs of your initial claim, right? And as time passes, you're going to become vulnerable to making inconsistent statements. And that's the secret sauce. They don't give you a magic wand when you go to law school that you know bestows upon you the power of cross-examination. There's nothing to cross. Cross, cross is easy. It's either easy and great or it's easy and terrible. It just depends on what prior inconsistent statements you can identify, what order you can line them up in from a narrative standpoint to show the jury most effectively that that person's testimony is not to be trusted. In this case, they've got problems to deal with on the defense side because the defendant has already offered multiple inconsistent statements from what I understand. But you know, you can deal with that if your client's going to testify, but you can't run away from it. You can deal with it. You know, you can explain what you meant when you made a statement that seems inconsistent, but you can't go up and offer a theory of the case that defies common sense and defies the most logical assumption that a juror uh, observing the facts and evidence would arrive at. You know, you got to give them something that they can find palatable and believable, even if they don't go all the way to the point of believing you they can acknowledge that your version of the case is is believable or isn't excluded by the state's evidence. Uh, by the way, I'm going to be on uh, Court TV tonight with Vinny Politan. Ruth Martell is going to be on as well, uh, along with Carl Steinbeck. So uh, join us at 8 p.m. tonight for that. Uh, Serge Deb, if I'm, my eyesight's really going. Harvey is a coward. Uh, back to you on this, Nate. This is Donna's husband. He should have been there to see his wife. It could have encouraged her. What about no one in Charlie's family was there for his trial, and now Donna doesn't have his daughter who's still free, or Harvey, or husband who's still free. Um, obviously, there's no jury in there right now. If it was to go to trial and there's no family members there, does that have any impact one way or the other where, where the jurors see or do not see support behind the defendant? I mean, I, I think it potentially could, but anytime you add variables to the equation, it's more dangerous, right? Because you don't want, you know, you don't want jurors seeing family members react negatively to bad evidence. You don't want them scoffing or just coming off as, you know, uh, somebody the juror doesn't like. You know, you, you can focus on your client because your client is sitting next to you. you. You can't have eyes in the back of your head trying to watch the family and make sure the whole family is behaving themselves. So... Whereas on the one hand, I can certainly understand an argument that you want you want your family there uh, just because it makes you as a, as a criminal defendant feel better, feel supported, um, you know, to have your family there and, and showing support uh, when you get to the trial. But at the same time, you know, I don't think a juror is going to think about or wonder about under most circumstances why fam family isn't present if the family isn't present. They're just going to have their attention honed in on the defendant, watching the defendant 
uh, at every chance they can to see how the defendant is reacting. So generally, I, I tell clients that, you know, if it were left up to me, I would prefer not to have their family there. But if the family is going to be there, you know, I'm just trying to impress upon them the importance of not reacting. And of course, the judge always gives instructions to that effect as well. But it's easier said than done. Uh, well put. Uh, for misdemeanor OG, uh, Jane, to you, um, what would be the first thing you would say to Donna if she were put in your cell with you? I think she's isolated right now, but let's say you guys were sharing a cell. What would you say to her? Goodness gracious. I don't even, I don't even know. <laughs> that was a, That's a hard question. Um, because, uh, I, 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 I mean, of course I would be kind to her because I, I believe, um, you know, and being kind to anybody, um, even if they're evil. So <laughs> I, I honestly can't answer that question. You know, I would just, you know, I would try to give her some tips, uh, you know, or help her any way I could. And, but that's, um, you know, that's about the best I could do. I, I don't think I could befriend uh, somebody like that. And I would hope that she wouldn't be in there with me for long or vice um, versa. <laughs> Wait, shout out to Frankie Fitt, a friend of the show who uh, helped us out behind the scenes today. And also, I am not T-Pain is one of our mods, Space Coast, the COE. Uh, she has another question for you, our mod, I am not T-Pain. Um, how do you think Donna will do in prison if, and that's a big if, if she is convicted? Any idea, Jane? You know, my honest feeling when it comes to uh, her even making it to trial and it's rough in there. It um, it's not an easy place, and she's not a young person. And um, I, I I would be surprised if she even if she could make it that long. Mm. Um, and I know that's been discussed by uh, other uh, other people on your shows. Um, just to be honest, I mean, she's lived a life of leisure. I don't know that she's tough enough to. Um, to, to get through it. And I don't, you know, even if she was convicted, I, I don't see her being in prison for long. A uh, couple more quick ones for you, Jane, then back to Nate. Do you think Donna's going to ask for kosher food because everyone here hears it tastes <laughs> better? Uh, is that a myth or is that true? <laughs> well, you get, you get kosher food in Tallahassee. There were a couple of people that had the kosher, um, they, they weren't Jewish, but they were, uh, I, I think they give vegetarians the kosher meals as well. Um, they actually got like, you know, fresh salads and stuff like that. Um, I personally didn't eat the whole time I was in, in there. I ate apples and oranges because, uh, yeah, the food is exactly as bad as everybody says it is. Um, What's the, a typical lunch? What's a typical lunch in that jail? Man, they... I can tell you, they, they had this breakfast one morning and it, it was sausage gravy. And I was like, wow, that actually looks pretty good. Maybe I'm, I might be able to eat that this morning. And, uh, oh yeah, it, it tasted like sawdust. <laughs> it was horrible, but it's like, it's usually some kind of, uh, uh, they like to give you beans a lot. I can tell you that, um, they uh it's just and there there's usually some kind of piece of fruit on there um but the inmates found out really quick that i didn't eat anything on my tray except a piece of fruit so they would bring me their piece of fruit and i would hand my tray to them 
because um, it was just it was that bad and I smell I, I swear I smelled for a week I like felt like I couldn't get that stink out of my nose my hair my skin yeah that uh, is uh, everyone says it is a putrid odor uh, last question for right now from uh, shirt I don't know what this is will Donna's nasty attitude get her in trouble with the other women and the guards do you think uh, yeah. Yeah, if, if she's gonna if she's gonna act like that, then yes, definitely. And um, you know, you you have to be humble in there. You have to have humility. And um, if you don't have a modicum of humility in your body, then you're gonna have big problems because um, the guards expect it, and the other inmates. You know, you just have to you have to show kindness, and you have to you know, kind of, um, you put on an attitude and you're going to get attitude back and then they're all going to gang up together on you. You don't want that. No, you definitely don't. Alligator Ashley says, thank you, Jane, for sharing your story with us. Very brave. And it's definitely appreciated by us at STS nation. So thank you. Lindsay Shada, Nate, Nate, would you take Donna's case? Let's put you on the spot right here. I mean, would I actually take Donna's case? No. But like, would I take a case like Donna's? Yeah, I mean, I'm a criminal defense attorney. If they have the money, sure, they can hire me. But as always, it comes with rules. Like, you don't get to call the shots. I lay that out up front. I make sure that the ground rules of the representation are understood and that they actually can follow uh, the rules that I set forth for them because those rules aren't designed to protect me. They're designed to protect them. You know, you were asking earlier, as an example, about talking to people in the jail about your case. On a serious case like this, it's not as simple as just not talking about your case. It's about preventing uh, the appearance that you could be talking about your case. You know, so just to you know, let you know of some of the measures I might take to protect the client from a circumstance. Because with a case like this, everybody's gonna try and jump on. Everybody is gonna try and help themselves by claiming that you made admissions to them. Uh, and so I tell clients upfront, I'm not gonna send you the discovery. I'll come out, I'll go over the discovery with you. I'll answer your questions about it, but you're not gonna have the discovery to read through on your own if it's a case like this where people are gonna try and jump on. Because what they'll do is they'll steal your discovery from your cell, they'll read it, they'll familiarize themselves with the ins and outs of the investigation, and then they'll come forward and try and add just a few additional details that seem to make sense in light of the context of the case. You know, So it's not just sending discovery out. I'll, I'll tell clients, you can't talk to anybody one-on-one. -on -one because there's video cameras everywhere. And if this guy claims, oh, we, we had this one-on-one -on -one conversation and he made admissions to me and there's a video of them talking together, you can't prove it didn't happen. So it's about knowing what the, what, what the uh, risks are within that setting, advising your clients about those risks and trying to get uh, your client on board with the plan to protect them from those risks. Um, Nate. The title of this thumbnail I came up with a couple of days ago was the domino effect, because there seems to be, you know, obviously the Adelsons, Charlie went down and now Donna, and there seems to be this sort of momentum by the state. Is that a fallacy? Is there anything to that? Is there any, is there anything to the fact that sometimes either defense, but in this case, the state uh, build some sort of momentum and they just go after defendants one at a time and there is this domino effect? Usually it doesn't go like this. Um, usually people do what's in their own self-interest because they should, you know. Um, as an example, to draw an analogy, 
uh, guys who get who get charged with federal drug trafficking conspiracies, they refer to the business as the game. The game is simple. Everybody knows the game. Like good guy catches bad guy, bad guy helps good guy, good guy helps bad guy. That's the nature of the game. And they all say, we know what time it is when we get indicted. Now it's time to roll. Right? It's, it's kind of the same thing in a state case like this. You have to understand what time it is. No one there is your friend. No one who's sidled, like, I would advise my client if she was in the pod uh, with this defendant to become her best friend, because that's in her best interest. Because if she becomes her best friend, then organically, she's going to get admissions. Because stuff like this, uh, especially with defendants like this, she's not going to be able to keep her mouth shut about it over the course of a year and a half or two years while the case is pending. She's going to make admissions. She's going to make statements about the case, you know, uh, and that could be anything from directly incriminating herself to revealing defense strategy, stuff like that. And so, you know, you, you want to, again, communicate with your own client to help them uh, guard against that kind of stuff. But if you got a client who's in the pod with them, I mean, if, if my client was in there, I'd be telling them, yeah, that's your best friend now. Go make friends and see what you can get out of them because that's in everybody else's best interest. That's kind of how it's set up. So yeah, it's going to be a rough ride, not because she's going to be in physical danger or anything like that. I mean, candidly, the, the women's pods are a lot softer than the med's, men's pods because men are macho assholes and they got to fight with each other. But, you know, the reality is that she's in far greater danger of, you know, people who come uh, looking like friends than she is uh, in, in terms of being in danger from people who present an overt and obvious threat to her. Uh, this is an interesting video I didn't pull up earlier, but if you watch it in the beginning, look at, look at the faces she's making. Um, she's talking, we don't, we have the audio, uh, tamped down, but, and then she like kind of looks forward and shaking her head at judge Everett. So, um, it just goes, you know, she looks like a woman of privilege who is now, um, being confined and is unhappy about it. Sort of, uh, a caged creature, if you will. Um, Jane, back to you here for what you just said about lack of visits from staff, whose word is more believable? believable today, Donna and the attorney or the staff, in your opinion? Um, I would have to say Donna and her attorney, based on what I experienced, because I couldn't even get, all I had was contacts, and I couldn't even get contact lens solution. I was there for seven days. <laughs> I had nowhere to put them, and if I took them out, I couldn't see. Um, and then, you know, my medication that I was on wasn't Xanax. It wasn't an opioid. It was a mild antidepressant, a very mild one. And I didn't even get that. And I put in for it. I mean, I heard Nate talking about it. I uh, put in for it and didn't even get that. So, you know, it's, I, I tend to, because of what I've seen, I lean their way on that. Um, Jane, back to you for a moment. Just kind of walk me through a day in this section of jail that Donna is in in Leon County. Just tell me what time do they wake you up? What do you What do you do? What is What is the uh, the typical day like? Um, they wake us up usually at five o'clock for for breakfast. Um, you get about. 15 minutes um, to eat breakfast and then they send you back to your cell 
and um, then you come out at about 11 for lunch or 1030. And then you're in there the whole afternoon until probably after shift change. So until maybe about seven, seven o'clock. And then they, they let you out until about nine, maybe 10. And then you're back in yourself. So, and what do you, what do you think, by the way, uh, Amber Ann, this guy knows exactly what's up speaking about Nate here. Excellent guest lawyer. Uh, there you go. Only the best guests. That's why we say we've got the best guests in true crime. It is not just a tagline. It is our reality here at uh, STS. Someone's asking, where do you think Wendy is right now? Is she watching a Lifetime uh, movie? Uh, probably not the case. Nate is 100% the kind of attorney. Nate is 100% the kind of attorney I would want. He exudes conference confidence. Nate, were you in the military? I feel like you were in the military. No, I wasn't in the military. I was just a football player, you know, all the way through high school and college and uh, dealt with a bunch of coaches who were either ex-military or wanted to be. So you you just kind of, I guess, developed that look and affect. (laughs) (laughs) Close close enough. So, um, you know, you you spent time in Tallahassee. Talk to me about Georgia Kappelman. You know, she knows this case inside out. And it does seem like the defense, because Donna's having such a miserable time, that they're willing to gamble and try to go to trial uh, today. Judge Everett su- suggested a case hearing in February or March, and her attorney said, let's do January 9th. They really tried to push it up. Um, let's see if Nate, there he is. He's bouncing back. Nate, what kind of prosecutor is Georgia Kaplan? Is she ready to get you know dirty again, so to speak, in the next couple of months, if, that, if that's what the defense wants and what Donna Adelson wants? Oh, you're muted for some reason. We lost your audio. Why did I lose your audio? Uh, Nate, we can't hear you. Hang on. I think you may have. Try us now. No audio, and there's no way I'm going to be able to fix that. So something happened when you took that call. Jane, I'm going to go back to you, and then we'll probably wrap this little bad boy up anyway. Uh, if you get your audio back, Nate, that's awesome. If not, totally understand. Um, Jane, what was it like watching, you know, Charlie's conviction? Um, you're going to see the sentencing or hear the sentencing or watch it tomorrow if you're watching us live at 1015. And also, now that you know that Don is next, um, is this case disturbing you in, in any way um, because of – the uh, convictions handed down, or are you okay with it? Uh, what is your take? Well, I yeah, I think they should get every you know everything the the law will allow um, because you know we all make choices, and at the end of the day, they made a really really bad choice, and um, I've taken that those boys the father away, the son of what, you know, he was a great mind. Um, I, I really think that they deserve every, every minute in prison they get. Do I feel bad for them <laughs> because they did that and they have to live that way for the rest of their lives as a human being, you know, I do, but as 
knowing what what they did and it was very clearly proven you know that they all did it it just it, it's it's not disturbing it doesn't disturb me at all well charlie's exactly where he belongs because he was convicted by a jury of his peers uh nate talk to me let me see if i can hear you nope lost your audio normally the coe will fix it Nate Prince, thank you so much. You were great. Nate Prince is a high-profile criminal defense attorney out of Tallahassee. Uh, he handled the uh, infamous Henry Segura case. He says he's the only innocent defendant he's ever represented. Um, there you go. And then uh, the one and only Jane. Jane, I hope you'll come back. It took a lot of courage to get up here and talk about your experience in the same pod that Don Adelson is now sitting in um, as this trial takes on uh, more twists and turns and more momentum. I hope that both of you uh, will come back, but I uh, really appreciate both of you being here again, a quick reminder tomorrow at 10 15 AM we're live with Charlie Adelson's sentencing and then victim impact statements. And then we're going to do another live show tomorrow night. And we've got tomorrow night, Nate Prince's friend, Steve Webster, who was Dan Markell's post-divorce attorney. You guys all love Louis Baptiste, Webster and Baptiste. They are partners in law. They don't have an office quite as nice as Nate Prince's best office I've seen. Tim Jansen Tim Jansen's pretty close, um, but, uh, but yeah. But that'll be on hey, this tomorrow. is just my at-home office. Yeah, you're don't back. the real office. You're back, Nate Prince. You're back. So, um that's just the at-home office. There you go. You haven't even seen the whole thing. Nate, since we have you back, any final words that you would like to, uh, I don't know, share with the audience about the criminal justice system and your job as a defense Well, I guess what I would leave you with is you would kind of ask uh, what kind of prosecutor Georgia is. Georgia is going to be ready for trial. Georgia is methodical and prepared. Uh, she cares about her cases. But uh, one thing that shouldn't go kind of missed here is that the person I think is probably the best government lawyer in the panhandle is sitting at the table next to her. And if Georgia wants to see the defendant eaten alive on the stand when she inevitably takes the stand, she'll unleash Sarah Dugan on her. Sarah Dugan will eat her for lunch and expose her as a liar. I have no question about that. Like, I, I look, Sarah made Henry Segura look bad um, and he was telling the truth. You know, uh, Sarah is an excellent lawyer. She, she kind of channels um, uh, an old prosecutor that everybody in the Tallahassee community kind of looked up to, uh, Kathy Ray. And uh, Kathy wasn't the most prepared lawyer. She was just the best, the grittiest, the gutsiest. And while Sarah is prepared like Georgia is all the time, Sarah also can kind of channel that intangible talent and just know when to press the gas and go after somebody without ever raising her tone, her tone of voice at all. She didn't have to be theatrical like me. She'll just grind you down if you're telling a lie and she'll expose it. You know, sometimes she gets up there, I think even without a plan and just kind of pokes around until somebody says something that's not true. And then she grabs them by the neck and drags them out into the light and exposes them. So um, yeah, it's not gonna be a good matchup for the defense against Georgia and, and Sarah Duke. And those are two good lawyers. Um, who, uh, unfortunately for the defense, I think will probably make short work of them when it gets down to it. Yeah, uh, Georgia and Sarah Dugan are intrepid, uh, you know, counselors. They do. Uh, glad that you brought her name up because Georgia usually does overshadow her. But uh, hey, 
if you're tired of uh, being a defense attorney, you should go into, I've got a business for you, designing law offices. That's, that's what you should do, man. That's your, that's your new calling, Nate. <laughs> There's probably a lot of money in it too. So uh, never know. It's not too late to switch careers. This time next year, you'll be the number one uh, law firm design interior decorator. So we'll look forward to that. Um, Tell you what, Jane, when I hang you. up my thigh, I'm going to run away and never talk to anybody ever again. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> you and I are very similar. Until then, till tomorrow morning, join me on Court TV with Ruth Markell and Carl Steinbeck. Love you, America. Love you, Tallahassee. Justice for Dan Markell. Thank you, Jane. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and... The chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. (coughs) Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks.